Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Show podcast. Hello, I'm Angela Kogod, sitting in for Roy Green. On this pre-election podcast, we have Sean Simpson from Ipsos with the latest polls. Are we still just too close to call? What has changed? Then Max Fawcett, National Observer columnist, gives us a recap of the campaign thus far. Then on to COVID. Jason Kenney has come under fire for his controversial handling of the pandemic, with some calling for his resignation. Dwayne Bratt, political science professor at Mount Royal University, with more on that. And how close are we to seeing a vaccine for kids? Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair in Emerging Viruses at the University of Manitoba, helped shed some light on that. The Roy Green Show podcast starts now. Well, throughout the election, we've been keeping a close eye on where people are, what people are thinking, where they are maybe leaning towards when it comes to actually casting a ballot, and that's thanks to Ipsos Public Affairs. Sean Simpson joins us today. Sean, thanks so much for taking some time for us. Good afternoon. Even in the final days, like we've got Saturday, Sunday, then we go to the polls on Monday, is Ipsos still gauging opinion, or are all the surveys complete? Oh, we're still in field. (laughs) We'll have one more (laughs) poll uh, for you uh, because, uh, you know, it's so close. Things could change. Uh, we don't want to be out of field too soon because we might miss some last-minute momentum uh, from one of the parties. Uh, you know, there's still news happening this weekend, and news can impact votes, so uh, we're in field right to the bitter end to try to figure out what's going to go on. And, Sean, I wanted to ask you that because we have seen just in the last couple of days Alberta Premier Jason Kenney suddenly becoming a pretty big focus here of the federal election after he introduced his, well, it's not a vaccine passport program, but his response to the pandemic. And that seems to be affecting things, too. So it will be interesting to see where the numbers are after all that plays out. The one thing, though, that we have seen throughout, not only the fact that this is such a close race, but also that people are still really angry that this election even happened. Have those numbers been growing or what have you seen in that area? Yeah, in fact, they they have been growing. At the start of the campaign, it was about 55% of Canadians who said that we shouldn't be having an election during a pandemic. Now, normally when you have a snap election with a minority government, uh, you know, Canadians aren't thrilled about it at the start, but that feeling subsides as we move on to more substantive issues. Uh, in this campaign, uh, I've never seen this before. The proportion who believe that we shouldn't have a, an election has been growing. It's now at two-thirds of Canadians, 68%, I believe it is, which is up 13 points in, in five weeks. That's a, that's a lot of change. And uh, I, I think two things could happen as a result of that. One is uh, that people could take that frustration out on the Liberals and park their vote elsewhere. Uh, but the second, and perhaps um, more likely of, of the scenarios, is that we have lower voter turnout. We also know that one in four Canadians say that they're uh, uh, afraid, they feel it's not safe to go vote in person, given long lineups and, 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 and everything. So uh, we're seeing some apathy here. They don't, they don't want an election. Nearly half don't like any of the leaders, and one in four don't feel safe voting in person. What does that all mean? I think it means that a lot of Canadians are going to stay home. And so what could that mean then when you have uh, a particular party in government? I'm just curious, when it comes to low voter turnout, what have we seen in past elections, whether or not that favours the sitting government? 
so um, low voter turnout typically favors uh, the Conservative Party. Uh, the hmm. reason is because uh, older people who are more likely to vote Conservative are also the most likely to go out and vote. If you look at um, you know national voter turnout rates, they tend to go up and down. They fluctuate from election cycle to election cycle. But if you look at it among just specific uh, age groups of the population, that 55 plus, the boomer crowd, they're 70, 75% turnout every time. So the overall turnout actually goes up and down because younger people sometimes show up to vote. So, for example, in uh, 2015, Justin Trudeau's first election, uh, and sometimes they don't show up to vote, which I think might happen this time, 2021, in which case uh, the, uh, the, the turnout rates overall would, will be lower. But conservative voters show up pretty well time and time again, and I think we might see a ballot box bonus for the Tories uh, on Monday. Even getting back to the younger voters, I know earlier this week, Jagmeet Singh was critical of the fact that there aren't the same polling stations on university campuses. There's not that access. And so I I think back to that idea of the younger voters, whether they turn out or not, it becomes a matter of access, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, And and there's always a little bit of confusion uh, for younger voters away at school. You know, where can you vote? You know, where where you're going to school or you're riding back home. It's always a little bit more of a difficult, uh, difficult process. Um, Jagmeet, uh, Jagmeet Singh is the favored prime minister among those under the age of 35, particularly uh, Gen Z, uh, under the age of 25 or so. Uh, they like him. They like him a lot. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to vote for him. Uh, Canadians liked Ed Broadbent. Uh, Canadians liked Jack Layton. It didn't mean that, that those people became prime minister. Uh, so uh, I think uh, Mr. Singh, who's been polling around 20, 21 percent, is going to have a hard time motivating his base, primarily younger people, to go out and vote, given some of the concerns and, and just logistical challenges that we've seen uh, in this uh, in this campaign. In the last hour, we opened up uh, the phone lines to listeners, and, and one person said he is voting PPC. You're hearing that more. Where are we seeing them in the polls? Because they, they are actually, I think it's still single digits, but yeah. they are a party that is showing up in the polls. Yeah, and actually, this is probably the one party where the polls don't seem to agree. Uh, we've had them around 3 or 4%. I'm seeing other polls have them as high as 9%. Um, this is probably the, 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 the one that scares me the most because it's, it's the unknown quantity. We, we don't exactly know what's going to happen. We know a lot of the PPC voters are sort of none of the above voters who traditionally would have parked their vote with the Green Party, but they're in a bit of disarray, so now maybe they're looking at the, uh, at the PPC as a result. Uh, our polling suggests that these voters are, in fact, motivated to go out and, and vote. Given their stance on COVID-19, they don't seem to be as concerned about the safety of voting in person. So maybe they do show up and vote, and maybe they are closer to 7 or 8%. I'm very, very curious to see where we have them in our, in our final poll and ultimately where they're going to end up on Election Day. That's the wild card. If they do really well, uh, then I think we find, uh, we'll see that the Liberals do a little bit better than expected in terms of the efficiency of their vote because the PPC is going to siphon away some votes from the Conservatives. Mm. It's the final weekend for the political parties to convince you to vote for them. Unless, of course, you were one of the, uh, what, 5.8 million Canadians who cast a vote in the advanced polls. It has been a long campaign, not just for the leaders, but for Canadians. And watching it all very closely was Max Fawcett, columnist with the National Observer. Max, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Angela. 
All right. I say it's been a long campaign and really, what, a little over 30 days or something like that. But uh, it became very heated. And I think uh, going into this whole campaign, a lot of Canadians were questioning whether or not it should be called. First of all, when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at the time called the election, did you think that we would get to this point where it was so close almost four weeks later? You know, I, I didn't think it was going to be the blowout that the polls were suggesting going into it. Uh, I didn't think that it would get as close as it did, as fast as it did, where it seemed like in the second week of the campaign, the Liberals were, were pretty clearly behind and, and perhaps behind by a lot. Um, but, you know, it's it's weird. We sort of feels like we're going to end up almost where we started uh, if the current polls hold. And, and I think that would be frustrating for a lot of Canadians having to you know, go through a month's worth of, of campaigning and politicking and, and all the rest of it. Um, but maybe that sort of tells people where we want this country to be right now. We don't want to give anyone a majority, but we also don't necessarily want to turn the reins over to a different party. And, and you know, all I can say is that hopefully we don't have to go through this again in, in six months. I know that would be the really frustrating part. And as they say about any campaign, in the early days, we, we saw Aaron O'Toole doing very well, and uh, the polls were reflecting that. But a lot of political pundits would say the campaign is, you know, a number of weeks. Things can change. What When you were watching things very closely, what were some key points that any of the leaders had that may have gained or lost followers for them? Can you go through some of the the key players and what you saw? Yeah, sure. I I think early on, obviously, the 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 advantage was to O'Toole and and he came out with his his policy platform, very detailed, very thorough, kind of put the, the, the argument to rest about you know, the secret agenda and, and not knowing what he wanted to do. And, you know, there's there's an actual climate plan in there that wasn't written on the back of a napkin at petroleum club here in Calgary. So it, it was progress. And I think the liberals sort of were caught flat footed. I think maybe they assumed that Canadians knew what the election was for and why it mattered. But Canadians didn't feel that way. You know, I think a lot of people were were quite unclear about why they had to vote on on, you know, uh, on an election at this point. But I also think the Liberals understood that the first few weeks were were kind of preliminaries. You know, people were on their their summer vacations. It was August. People weren't really paying attention, by and large, to politics. And I think the way they mapped their campaign out was that they would put the pedal to the metal come Labor Day. And I think we've seen that. Um, we've seen that in the intensity of the, the attacks that they've they've launched against the Conservative Party, against O'Toole's leadership. Um, you know, there's a lot of the stuff around pointing out. Uh, you know the the inconsistencies in in the in the platform. You know, for example, you know, Mr. O'Toole has said that he would you know get rid of the the, the guns that the Liberal uh, government has has pledged to take off the streets that have been involved in all these horrific mass shootings. But then it wasn't clear that that was actually the case. And then you know, firearms associates came out and said, "No, no, O'Toole's got our back. We get to keep these guns." And you know, he spent a few days kind of in the mud there because of that. And and I think. You know, if the Liberals do get reelected here, it will be in large part because it was not clear to Canadians who he, Aaron O'Toole really was. Is he the, the true blue conservative from the leadership race or is he this moderate, you know, centrist guy that, that he has tried to portray himself as in this campaign? And, and I think the Liberals have done a good job of kind of poking holes in that. I, you know, I think it's interesting that for all the talk that there's been about 
guns and, and ethics and Jody Wilson-Raybould and everything else, there hasn't been any talk about the issues that are actually at the top of the agenda for Canadians. I, there's been very little conversation, as far as I can tell, about climate policy, climate change. It started to pick up lately, you know, with Liberals getting endorsements from former Green Party leader Andrew Weaver, from economists like Mark Jacquard, but it's still been a minor note in this campaign. And, it, it, you know, that, that that is going to be the issue that resonates, I think, in five or 10 years when we look back on this. So I think it's disappointing that we haven't had a, you know, didn't have an entire leaders, leaders debate dedicated to climate change. I think it's ridiculous that the biggest thing to come out of them was a question that the moderator asked rather than what the actual leaders said. Um, and I think Canadians, however they vote, have a right to be frustrated with the quality of the discourse that we've had over the last few weeks. All right. I want to get to the debate, but I want to still go back to you. You mentioned Aaron O'Toole and Justin Trudeau. Talk about Jagmeet Singh and his performance on the campaign trail. I heard a, a different political commentator describe it as having one gear. And I think I think that's a good way to put it. He's been very likable. Uh, he's, he's definitely emphasized that likability. You know, he, he sent out a poutine truck. Uh, you know, branded with his face on it. He's been really focused on on appealing to people on that level and attacking the prime minister and, and the conservatives. But when it comes to his plan, when it comes to his actual ideas, what he would implement if he's prime minister, he hasn't really had anything. There was a there was a very interesting exchange with Rosemary Barton of the CBC the other night where she was pressing him on his position on TMX because he's come out and said he's very opposed to it personally. Hates the, hates the project, hates the decision to buy it. But if he becomes prime minister, he'll review the project. And and she pushed him to say, well, what does that mean? What do you mean review? And he couldn't tell her. Um, and I think that's sort of emblematic of, of the NDP on this campaign. They Their policies really feel kind of half-baked on a lot of fronts. Um, you know, in some cases, they've just been outright wrong. There was an accusation earlier in the campaign that the prime minister was, quote, profiting from student loan interest payments, which, I mean, that's just not how any of this works. Um, and I think, it, you know, if they if they do a debrief after this is over, I suspect the thing that they will gravitate towards is that they, they focused a lot on likability and didn't translate that into votability. Mm-hmm. And I think on some level, Canadians are not going to entrust you with their vote and their, you know, their, their piece of the, the keys to 24 Sussex, unless you show them that you actually are serious about the job. Okay, we've covered the three main political party and their leaders. Uh, we haven't talked about Maxime Bernier with uh, the People's Party of Canada. And and you even wrote a column that said, we need to talk about Maxime. Why? I think he represents, uh, you know, the same thing that we saw in the United States under Donald Trump, this kind of prideful ignorance, this this sense that, you know, owning the libs is in and of itself a worthwhile thing. And, and when you layer on the anti-vax stuff, which he is clearly the spokesperson for those who refuse to get vaccinated, this is not just a, a political issue. This is a public health issue. And I, you know, I, I think the conservatives have a, a lot to answer for here in terms of enabling and empowering uh, this movement. I mean, he is, Maxime Bernier is a former Conservative Party of Canada cabinet minister. Uh, he almost won the leadership race in 2017. I don't think they've done enough to knock that down. And and I think we have to have a broader conversation about what this sort of populism means in this country and what we do to deal with it. You know, we've we've seen people kind of playing footsie with the anti-vax community, trying to win their votes by not being too mean to them or not calling them out for, for their behavior. And 
look where it's led us, especially here in Alberta, where I live. You know, we, we have suddenly these new restrictions where we can't go out, can't go to restaurants, all this other stuff, because our hospitals are about to collapse under the weight of COVID-19. So the cost of sort of not calling this out is clear. And, and I think it's long past time that, that everyone did that. And as much as you're saying we should all be concerned about that, what about specifically Aaron O'Toole and what that could do to his support and whether or not the conservatives he used to have will be going PPC? Yeah, it's tough. He's he's kind of painted himself into a bit of a corner there when you, you know, this is something that conservatives, I think, have to deal with as a structural issue in their party, because to win the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada right now, you have to appeal to the furthest right elements in the party. We saw that with Andrew Scheer, and we saw that with Aaron O'Toole and, and his True Blue campaign. And then you have to come back to the electorate and be more moderate. And that doesn't work for two reasons. Number one, it doesn't work because Canadians don't buy it. But number two, it upsets the people who thought you were this True Blue conservative before. It, it alienates them. It, it makes them feel like you aren't telling them the truth. So, I, you know, I, I'm on some level, I feel like he needs to maybe not put his own political survival ahead of the, the, the long-term interests of his party in the country. I think we need to call this out. We need to, to lance the boil that is, that is sort of bubbling up here. Uh, and if that means he needs to, to lose a few votes in a few ridings, I think that's the cost that he has to pay now. Um, whether he'll actually do that, whether he'll show that kind of leadership, I guess, is an open question. Well, you can read Max's columns in nationalobserver.com. Timing, of course, is everything in an election campaign. Common political strategy is to hold back a a nugget against your opponent and then release it when it'll do the most harm, usually as close to election day as possible. This campaign, though, that political nugget has come from within the conservative movement. Alberta Premier Kenny has suddenly become the best thing for the Liberal Party, it appears. Lots of things to unpack here today. Helping us to do that is Dwayne Bratt, political science professor, Mount Royal University. Hello, Dwayne. Good afternoon, Angela. You're probably on Roy Green's show more than I am, so I, I know our <laughs> listeners are probably more familiar with you than me. Uh, okay, I don't know where to begin. Um, how about we just start with how Jason Kenney suddenly became the focus of this federal election campaign. Can you take me back to that specific point? Uh, I mean, this had been building for a while, but it really kicked in Wednesday night um, when Kenny gave his press conference because it put a shining lamp on the crisis in Alberta. And so Thursday morning, all three major party leaders had to respond to the the press conference and what was going on in Alberta. Justin Trudeau clearly links Aaron O'Toole to Kenny. Um, Jagmeet Singh does the same thing in different parts of the country. And what they're saying is, if Aaron O'Toole had been Prime Minister of Canada, he would have done to Canada what Jason Kenney had done to Alberta. Right? And now, for our listeners, though, sorry, Dwayne, but for our listeners who haven't followed the situation in Alberta as closely, it, uh, Premier Kenney came out with, I can't call it a vaccine passport, but he came out with a program, and and it suddenly was a vaccine passport, kind of. Just explain what he discussed yeah, so he in that news conference. He doesn't want to call it a vaccine passport. He doesn't exactly. want to call it a vaccine mandate. 
So it's called <laughs> the Restriction Exemption Program. So he put a whole series of restrictions. So restaurants couldn't have indoor dining. There couldn't be indoor sports. Um, there were limitations on funeral receptions or wedding receptions, uh, capacity limits at retail store, unless you could get your customers to prove that they were vaccinated. So he's putting the onus, not from a government mandate, but on private businesses and organizations to implement a mandate because he says it's, it's your choice. But you tell a restaurant owner, you can either have no indoor dining or a proof of vaccination. That's not really a choice. Okay, so it's, it's a very complicated. And even to this day, so it's Saturday. The announcement was on Wednesday. There are still people who don't know what it means, how it affects them. How do you get proof of vaccination? Because it's, it took into effect Thursday morning. But the proof of vaccination doesn't kick in until Monday. And, and the even when we looked at yeah. it, you can't even get your proof of vaccination <laughs> this weekend. And that's what I was going to say. Even when Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe said they're going to be coming in with a vaccine passport, it's not, I believe, until October 1st. Gave it a bit of time because you're right. Any Albertan even trying to see, can I check my my vaccine immunization record? Well, you can't even get online. So, yeah. So this well, became you, a big thing. To add to it, the universities in Alberta um, decided that they were going to require proof of vaccination for faculty, staff, and students, effective January 1st. They made that announcement a week ago. Now they've bumped it up to uh, Monday. <laughs> yeah, so you can all right, so you can understand. That's going mm-hmm. on. Now, back up, though, as you said, um, this was building. We The numbers in Alberta when it came to hospitalization rates and ICU and even deaths were growing, but we had no one in a position of power, i.e. Premier Kenny or the Chief Medical Officer of Health, who was coming before the public to say what the plan was. So there's lots of speculation as to why Premier Kenny, yes, he was on holidays, but even then, no one was guiding the province. And what were you hearing? So forget about how complicated and convoluted the don't call it a vaccine mandate that's a mandate was on Wednesday. They waited 30 days. Uh, On September 3rd, so less than two weeks prior, he said no mandate. Instead, they would pay people a hundred dollars to get vaccinated but the icus are over capacity we're having to send patients to other provinces we're begging for doctors and nurses from other provinces to come to alberta we are having the equivalent of a humble broncos bus crash every day when it comes to death over 50 percent of all covid cases are in alberta and we have 15% of the population. We're in trouble. And We're in we, trouble. Uh, the, yeah, we recognize. They're canceling surgeries, non-COVID surgeries. They shut down the operating capacity at the children's hospital to redeploy resources to deal with COVID. So there are people, babies, not getting medical treatment. 
So how does this, because other provinces not as bad as Alberta have been struggling through the pandemic, but how does this become a focal point of the federal election campaign, doing? So for, for a couple of reasons. Um, various provinces have struggled at various times during the pandemic. The difference is this was the fourth wave, right? You would have thought there would be some policy learning uh, over over the pandemic. The other is that Kenny announced open for summer. So he dropped al- almost all restrictions by July 1st that allowed the Calgary Stampede to occur. And he said open for summer, open for good. And so it's not just how they, it's being hit now, it's the statements that were made two months ago, three months ago that are coming to fruition now. So we maybe not had the best summer ever, but people did have fun in July, and now people are dying in September. Dwayne, want to bring in the idea, though, this came, as you said, Wednesday night started to roll out Thursday. We're hearing constantly about this. Why is the timing so bad for Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole? Because the election is Monday. (laughs) Right, so it it puts the spotlight on the relationship between Aaron O'Toole and Jason Kenney in the last week of the election. There are clips of Aaron O'Toole praising Jason Kenney's COVID response. Now, those are out of date. He's referring to the first wave, but he echoed it early last week before the press conference. So then when you show those clips of, of... O'Toole and Kenny together, you show the clips of O'Toole praising Kenny, then you show the the graphs of COVID deaths, hospitalizations, ICUs, it allows opposition parties to legitimately make that link between O'Toole and, and Kenny. Jason Kenny endorsed Aaron O'Toole for the leadership of the Conservative Party. Jason Kenney, through his organizational weight, which was not insubstantive, to O'Toole to help him win the leadership. And then you have this this situation. So this is hurting the federal conservatives in some parts of Alberta, in some writings, but it could also hurt them outside of Alberta. There looked like there was some sort of tacit agreement with the O'Toole team that Doug Ford and Jason Kenney, two prominent conservative premiers, would disappear for the federal election. Doug Ford prorogued the legislature, and there has been few sightings of Ford during the election. Until Wednesday, Jason Kenney had been seen twice in the first 30 days of the federal election campaign. And he had to eventually come out, especially as we saw what was happening with hospitalization numbers. But but even going back to Aaron O'Toole as early as last Monday, still praising uh, Premier Kenny's handling of it, can a leader not come out now and say, be critical of it, or that is going to, again, cost him votes? He might have been able to do it Thursday. Right. And say, you know, what is going gone on in Alberta in the first wave? Jason Kenney handled that really poor or well. 
That's yeah. what I was referring to. But the fourth wave has been back. But if you watch that clip, there's 15 minutes of O'Toole-facing reporters' questions that are all the same. And O'Toole pretends he'd never heard of Jason King. Yeah. So if he was to come out today, it would just confirm the narrative that Trudeau is giving about the flip-flopping of Aaron O'Toole and what does he really stand for, but like he did on guns. How about where this plays uh, with the PPC and Maxime Bernier? Because we know Justin Trudeau is making hay of this, but what about the PPC as far as I know they're way, way back in the polls, but is that it's also the concern about, of Aaron O'Toole? It's not about election. Yeah. Maxine Bernier is in Calgary as we speak. There's, he's got a crowd of close to 1,000 people, and they are protesting. The fact that restrictions were brought in on Wednesday, they are protesting uh, the vaccine mandate that's not a mandate. They are protesting masks. They are protesting uh any sort of restrictions on COVID because it's a hoax. And so Bernier is making hay of this in an opposite direction of what Trudeau is doing. And I'm still trying to get my head around Premier Kenny because there is a part of me that is saying the, he seems to be the only conservative leader in this country that was going to be damned if he did or damned if he didn't. It seems like he is getting criticism from both sides, whereas that doesn't seem to play out the same. Um, I, I'm just trying to think, and you'll remind me. Yeah, at What's the that? same time, they're not equal sides. There's yeah. 80% of Albertans that wanted a vaccine mandate. Most politicians facing a situation where 80% of the people are on one side, and 20% are on the other, they're going to sit on the 80. Yeah. Unless those 20% are sitting in your caucus. And that's what's happening right now. Yeah. And the difference is with someone like Doug Ford, throughout the pandemic, his approval ratings has, has gone up, it's gone down, it's gone up, it's gone down. And the issue around Ford has been about competency. With the issue of Kenny, it's ideological rigidity, putting party against the health of Albertans, and an absolute lack of empathy. Even today, he is justifying this by saying Alberta's got a better record than the other provinces on COVID. Well, and especially he's talking about deaths, and that drives me crazy because we're really dealing with a bigger issue when it comes to hospitalization rates, as well, you his, said yeah, at the beginning. He's looking at 18 months. If he looked at, and, and he's correct, oh. over 18 months. But if you look yeah. at the last six weeks, there's a concentration of deaths in one province. His. Yeah, and you look at the last four days. I mean, uh, Alberta's seen 18 in one day, 24 in one day. I mean, it's going in the wrong direction. I, I want to talk, though, about the direction of his leadership then, because you had a pretty powerful tweet out, I believe it was last night, Dwayne, I'm starting to lose track, but you've talked to some insiders, and what are they saying about Premier Kenny and what his performance could so, do, so what, not just provincially but federally? Said, and I'm keeping him anonymous. Yeah, but is a well-known backroom donor, fundraiser, activist for the 
federal provincial conservatives for years. Well-known guy. He says, forget about 2023. The UCP are done. Uh, whether Kenny can survive the 2023, doesn't matter. The UCP are not going to win in 2023. But he went further. He said, what has happened now is going to destroy conservatives in this province for a decade or more. And, wow. and people have jumped on this and said, oh, that's ridiculous. People have short memories. There are people in this province who still vote against Liberal and Trudeau because of the National Energy Program from 40 years ago. Yeah. So don't tell me that in 18 months or three years or four years, people are going to forget about the 2,500 people who died over the last couple months. So we have heard rumblings a lot that Premier Kenny should be stepping down so that the party at least can get a new leader in, similar to Manitoba Pallister, but the idea of getting a new leader in. So in two years, the UCP aren't done. What are your thoughts on that? Watch what happens on Tuesday. The federal election is over. Um, I think there's going to be several things that are going to happen. One is a series of motions from constituency associations of the UCP calling for an emergency leadership review. Uh, The constituency of Old Didsbury issued it yesterday, and apparently there's anywhere from 20 to 25 more that will come out uh, by Tuesday. But most of those are groups who are actually upset with some of the restrictions. the other thing to uh, watch for Tuesday are members of the O'Toole campaign team. If he does not become prime minister and they feel that it was because of what has gone on in Alberta with Jason Kenney, are they going to be blaming Kenney for the results of the federal election? It didn't take very long for conservatives to start attacking Andrew Scheer after his election defeat in 2019. So I think a lot of things are going to break once the federal election is over. The question remains, when will there be a vaccine for kids under 12? Dr. Jason Kindrichuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair in Emerging Viruses at the University of Manitoba, joining us today. Hello, Jason. Hey, thanks for having me on. All right. That's been the question ever since vaccines became available. A lot of parents concerned, wondering, when will I be able to have a vaccine for my child? What is the latest when it comes to that development? Yeah, it's a great question, right? And I think what we're hearing now is, uh, you know, kind of in line with what we thought initially. It looks like the order for 5 to 11-year-olds, at least for the emergency use authorization, is probably going to be filed in the U.S. within the next couple of months. And I would actually say probably even closer to weeks uh, as opposed to months. Um, For those that are under uh, the age of 5, it's going to be a little bit longer, right? So they're still waiting for more safety information uh, to, uh, to to be provided to uh, to FDA and then to other organizations across uh, the world. So I'm thinking probably you know late 2021, maybe early 2022. And you're talking about the FDA. Of course, it's Health Canada here. So do they wait to see what happens in the states before Health Canada decides to do a similar thing here? You know what? That's always been, I think, the belief, right, was that, well, Canada will just follow the FDA's lead. And actually, I don't think that's the case. I mean, Canada certainly um, is getting basically independent information that is submitted to them. They're going through their own independent approval process. And we've certainly seen that with some of the vaccines that 
Um, you know, there has been a, a longer period of time where uh, certainly Canada has has reviewed vaccines. They're going through an independent process. So I think we we certainly want to be, I think, in line with what the FDA is doing, um, you know, certainly to, to be supportive. But at the same time, we want to have that independent process so that if we don't feel something is warranted to be on the market or be available to Canadians, it, it won't be. And, and I'm glad you mentioned the uh, U.S., the emergency use authorization, because I think a lot of times Canadians are confused with, wait, did Health Canada just do an emergency use authorization? Were these vaccines fully approved in our country? Could you clarify that for my listeners? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, listen, right now what, what we're doing is that, uh, you know, Canada went through, they did the, the initial uh, interim order for, for drug authorization. Um, and certainly what they've been doing is has been accruing information to, to get these drugs approved. So they're basically following along the same lines of what we've seen in the U.S., where they're getting, you know, basically vaccine out to people, uh, you know, initially as, as quickly as possible, as long as it's deemed safe and they're deemed efficacious. And then they'll also review information in the background to make sure that these products can be fully uh, approved and, uh, and available for, uh, for you know, broad use and licensed uh, in Canada afterwards. So kind of different terms, but still a process that they're getting them out and then watching the data and making decisions along the way as it goes. All right, let's let's go back to the vaccines, though, because when, when you said uh, the next step for the vaccines for those under the age of 12, is it one vaccine in particular or are we still looking at the the ones we've become so familiar with when it comes to Pfizer, Moderna, um, AstraZeneca? It's really following the lines of what we've seen already available, right? So, so Pfizer certainly is is well ahead of the game, and that's always been the case with uh, with vaccines through the pandemic. Um, so they will submit theirs first. I would imagine Moderna is not going to be that far behind. Certainly, they were enrolling in clinical trials uh, not too long after Pfizer was, um, and, and then for other vaccines, you know, certainly AstraZeneca, um, you know, there have been larger questions. I think Canada has seemingly made the decision that they're moving away mm-hmm. from AstraZeneca. Um, but there are vaccines that are still in clinical trials or are still waiting for approval. And we may see those uh, come through yet as well. So it, it, it is still a little bit murky, but certainly Pfizer and Moderna are the front runners and, and certainly the ones we have the most information for globally. Might be getting to the weeds here, but when it comes to clinical trials, is it a case of parents volunteering their children? Can you kind of walk me through that process when it comes to yeah, a vaccine for children? Absolutely. It, it literally is, right? It, I mean, one of the things that, that people want to look at, first of all, is, you know, what, what is the dosing that can be used in kids? Is it the same uh, that, that is required in adults, or, or can we actually go to, to lower doses? So there is, there is that need to be able to assess safety, because we can't just say, listen, uh, uh, you know, a, one of, a child is half the size or a third of the size of, of an adult, so that means that they can get, you know, a third of the dosage and everything's fine. It, immunity doesn't work on, you know, basically that that weight-to-weight ratio. Um, so it is really about trying to establish safety. So we have an idea of what immunity looks like in, in adults. We have some good correlates that we can look at in the laboratory. So we can look for that uh, in, in kids that are vaccinated, but we also start to look at, are there any other safety concerns that, that come along with this that, that, you know, basically are showing up for kids, but not necessarily for, for adults? Hmm. I mean, we've had enough questions about the vaccines for adults. Will 
we expect to have the same concerns, obviously, but I'm just wondering how effective it'll be in making sure we get as many children when the time comes vaccinated. What do you think is the important thing for public health officials to be able to convince parents to have their children vaccinated? Yeah, it's going to be the safety, right? I mean, when we certainly in in vaccine hesitancy uh, conversations that, that I've had and panels that I've been on, the, the number one concern has always been about safety. What is the long term effects uh, of these particular vaccines? Uh, what are they going to be on our children? And I think we we can assess that, right? And certainly with vaccines, we don't see long-term resounding effects uh, with, with vaccines. It's something that within a couple of months, if there's any going to be any side effects, that's when we will actually uh, identify it and see it. So we can assess some of this just by the history of vaccines, but certainly parents still want to know that you know, this brand new product that they've heard about and all this information about mRNA vaccines, which they you know, have not heard about previously, is this still deemed safe for children? And I think we, we have to do a very good job in our communication, but also be very open with information as it's coming in and, and certainly, you know, maintaining that transparency that's so important. Well, and as we, I mean, I'm broadcasting from Alberta and everyone in the country knows what's happening in our hospital system yeah. when it comes to the unvaccinated ending up in hospital care. Then there would be that extra concern that what could happen if it starts to, we are seeing cases in young children, but how serious is it at this point when it comes to COVID and young children under the age of 12? You know, and this is where we get into this misnomer that, you know, certainly COVID um, does have a propensity for severe disease and, you know, certainly the elderly and older adults and, and then those with underlying health conditions. But there has been this kind of, you know, persistent feeling that, well, kids are refractory to disease and younger people uh, just get mild disease. Well, you know what? The data actually doesn't say that. Certainly the U.S. with Delta, we've seen record hospitalizations for kids, whether it's more severe with Delta than it has been with prior uh, um, variants of concern or strains. I don't think we necessarily have that information yet. But if you take a virus that's already pretty good at transmitting and you increase its transmissibility and you put people in close proximity, even if they have a, a low risk of infection, um, you will still get people that are infected. So there's a risk to kids with, with disease. And certainly there's also that risk of onward transmission uh, into communities that, that are vulnerable. So all, all of this plays a part in this idea of trying to curb the pandemic and also reduce the stress on the healthcare system. Uh, Professor Kindra Chuck out of the University of Manitoba is my guest today. So we were talking about um, things looking very promising when it comes to a vaccine as they work their way through the regulatory process in the U.S. Globally, are we seeing vaccines at all uh, with children? Uh, you know, we're, we're, so we're, we're getting information, again, for, for kids certainly above the age of 12. Right. We've been getting a lot of information, certainly from Israel uh, and, and other countries, certainly uh, getting information from the U.S. and now uh, with, with what we've had. Um, for, for kids under those age groups, we're still waiting, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what we're going to see is basically the same sort of real-time uh, provision of, of information as we saw with the initial rollout of the mRNA vaccines. I would again would say, uh, look, the, the vaccines are, are safe. Certainly mRNA vaccines, I think, have been the most scrutinized vaccines we've seen in history. They've gone into billions of, of arms now across the globe. Um, we, at some point, we have to be able to appreciate that, that they have met the burden of safety. For kids, I think we have very good data to suggest that they're going to continue to be safe for those under the age of 12. But the clinical trials will give us more information. Then, of course, they'll be heavily monitored once we start seeing wider dispersion. 
Before I let you go, read an article, reliable source, but suddenly I'm seeing some names that I haven't heard of when it comes to our different vaccines. And I may not even be saying this one correctly, but uh, Comirnaty, it, it's it's still the Pfizer vaccine. Oh, a bit of confusion here. What's up? Yeah, so so basically, Health Canada has authorized the brand name changes for Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca. So basically, what it means is that these are now the the trade names that, that we will see uh, when when people are actually you know providing um, you know, prescriptions and and you know they're being uh, they're being purchased. I, I think Dr. Isaac Bogosh, uh, you know, summed it up pretty perfectly when he said, uh, "No, I'm just going to be calling it the, the same names: the Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca." I, we, we've it's become synonymous with our culture, right? So. They will have trade names, but we will forever know them likely by the company names. Plus, I can't seem to say Comernity. Anyway. (laughs) I get it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 